The title of today's sermon is The Resistance, and it's taken from Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. I was reminded afresh this morning about how our young people are learning about history. They learn about World War II from dumb World War II movies, like Tom Hanks's film, or the Civil War from Glory. They learn about the Nixon White House from uh, All the President's Men. They learn about the Bible from the History Channel. That's why they're not here this morning. They don't give a rip any longer about truth. They're out in the streets resisting the truth. Well, we believe in the truth. We believe in going to the sources of where truth comes from. As a history major, I studied this, the sources where history evolved from, the original sources. That's why we go to the Bible every week to study it. And so this morning, we're going to look at the book of Matthew once again and to see Jesus' words and what they mean to us today, not somebody's opinion on a, on a television program, but Jesus' actual words. So if you would join me in prayer as we ask God to guide us and study us, and lead us, I should say, as we study it. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as your people, to look into your word, and to be encouraged and exhorted from it. Guide us in our understanding of it and application to our lives, we would pray in Jesus' name. If we were living in a normal political season, President Trump would have experienced a honeymoon period. The first months of his administration would have been marked by goodwill and high hopes for the future. Instead, his election was greeted by an opposition movement created by the progressive left. Their response to the new president, however, was not unusual in American history. It's the extent to which this resistance has gone that is noteworthy. For example, when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, he was greeted by hostility and animus from the Democratic Party as well. The resistance was hell-bent on stopping Lincoln from undoing the one thing that they cherished, and that was slavery. The resistance to Trump began on day one, greeted by statements as that of Michael Moore. We're going to resist. We're going to oppose him. There will be a massive resistance, and that was followed by a pamphlet published by former Democrat congressional staff workers entitled Indivisible, a Practical Guide for Resisting the Trump Agenda. They envisioned a leftist resistance in the same vein as the Tea Party movement. On the heels of this, we had the Women's March in Washington, D.C. You'll recall the disgusting pink hats that they wore. Behind them on a 70-foot banner hung from a crane was the word resist. This movement has now come to be known as the resistance. Its genesis was out of the angst felt by those who wanted Hillary Clinton elected president. Heightening their anger and their hatred was the Republicans rolling to victory in all of the state legislatures and governorships as well. The Republicans have a lock on party, on on power in this country that they haven't had in over a hundred years. Liberalism was dealt a stunning defeat by President Trump. That gave rise to this resistance. It reminds me of a resistant movement against John, 
the baptizer, and Jesus, who were trying to influence the nation of Israel for good. Today, we look at Matthew chapter 21, where we find the resistance is in lockstep against the change that Jesus wanted to bring to the nation of Israel. But before we delve into that, let me share with you the literary structure of this text. Now, many people don't care about literary structures. They want stories told that move them and make them cry. The whole point of the writing of these men was to make a point, and we see that in the literary structure found in this text. It's an A-B-B-A pattern in this passage, which forces our attention on the middle of the text. It's sort of what's called a book ending as well. There's a question that begins this text, and there's a question that ends this text. And sandwiched in between are three parables. The first question is what we look at today in verses 23 through 27 of Matthew 21. This is followed by Jesus' answer, three parables, and then the same question closes the ABBA pattern. The three parables in between answer the question that is raised by the religious elites. Now, you'll recall that this took place on the third day in a row in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem and the temple. His first visit, he simply looked around and then left and returned to Bethany. On his second visit, Jesus was greeted by the praise of the children. They praised him as the son of David, the expected Messiah. Jesus then healed the hurting and then cleansed the temple of the moral corruption that he found there. In doing so, Jesus challenged the authority of the religious elites in their own safe space, their home turf. Jesus fans the enmity between himself and those in the Sanhedrin by returning to the temple a third day. When they heard that Jesus was on his way into the temple and then was beginning to teach in the royal portico, the Sanhedrin rushed to find him there. Now, you'll recall that this is the Passover season, and the temple is filled with Jewish people from around the world. And here was this usurper in the middle of their temple, denying the things that they taught. Now, the first parable that we look at this morning will be the parable of the two sons. The second parable is known as the Landover's Vineyard or something similar to that. They have different names. But the third one is usually called the wedding feast. The common thread that runs between all of these parables, all three, is how entrance to the kingdom of God is gained, or how one becomes a son of the kingdom. By the way, the term kingdom of God is found prominently in all three of these parables, so we find that the focus there is on the kingdom of God. Jesus will assert in these parables that the Jews enter the kingdom of God, some unexpectedly and some who expect to be there will not be. As a unit, then, these three parables teach us that acceptance into the kingdom is not a matter of human works or human obedience but is by belief, by faith, in the Messiah. So Jesus turns the tables upon the religious elites and their argument that they make through their question in these three parables. They question Jesus' authority. Where did it come from? 
What gives him the right to claim Messiahship? Parable number one compares and contrasts the different sons within the nation of Israel. Parable number two shows that the son of the landowner is killed because he claims his heirship. Parable number three is the honoring of the son by the king who has invited the guests of his kingdom to the wedding feast. We will look at all three of these in depth. These parables answer the question posed by the religious elites as to who the sons of God are and what gives him the right to claim to be the Messiah. All three parables give us a picture of the person and the works of Jesus Christ. All of them show us that Jesus is the divine son of David. The first parable reveals him as the obedient son. The second parable shows Jesus to be the rejected son. And the third parable shows him to be the honored son. Now to place this passage in context, we must remember that Jesus had just cursed the fig tree, which was representative of the nation of Israel and their future suffering of judgment for the rejection of the son. In this text, the conflict between the religious elites and Jesus is elevated to a point of Jesus' pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me now to the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 23. If you need to use a pew Bible that's in front of you, you can find this text on page 982. It's now Tuesday of the Passion Week. Once again, Jesus leaves the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha in Bethany, and he heads for the temple complex. He goes over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and up through the Gate Beautiful into the temple complex. This is the third day in a row he has done so. On Monday, he exercised his prerogative as the high priest of Israel to cleanse the temple of the moral filth that had corrupted it. He expelled those who corrupted my house, you'll recall. Now we read in verse 23 that when he entered the temple on the third day, the chief priests and the elders of the people, that's the Sanhedrin, came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you that authority? We can't hear the tone of their voices as they asked this question, but I'm sure it was not pleasant. Jesus is in the middle of teaching the people who are hanging on every one of his words and these egotistical religious fools come storming into the royal portico and they lambast Jesus with these questions. You can see on the um, graph behind me, Herod's temple. Do we have that, Danny? Anybody back there? Oh, it's on there. I'm sorry. My monitor's not on up here. This is the temple complex. This is Solomon's, Solomon's porch or the royal portico. This is where Jesus is teaching the people. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the entrances. There's an entrance here, which is where Jesus would have come up. And uh, this is the Antonio Fortress where the Roman soldiers looked over and made sure nothing nefarious was taking place in the temple. So the Sanhedrin sees him, the elders, the Pharisees, the uh, um, other religious leaders. They see him teaching 
They've been watching him carefully. They've even gone so far as to put spies into his group of disciples. Or should we call them confidential informants? Hmm. Anyway, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing and what he was teaching, and so they now pounce on him in the temple to attack him. This confrontation is over the question of Jesus' authority in their temple. Who do you think you are? This is our temple. They got their authority from birth. They were born into their lineage as Levitical priests, or they had bought off the Romans to get their position. So they're asking, who does this upstart bumpkin from the Galilee think he is coming and usurping our power? Truth is, they were fuming on the inside, and it was now boiling over in front of all the people. Let me note here that these are the same men who never question any of the acts of mercy that Jesus did. He has just healed the lame and the blind. It was in our previous text. What they do question, though, is the source of his authority. From where do you get your authority? You know, before they said it was from Satan, Beelzebub. Notice that they say, to do these things. Circle that, highlight that in your text. Where do you get the authority to do these things which you have done? We must assume, then, that these things include his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he's pronounced the king by the people, his cleansing of the temple, his act as high priest, cleaning out the corruption of the temple, and his praise from the children and his healing and hurting, healing of the hurting that are found there. And now the Sanhedrin, some portion of the 70 members of that group, we don't know exactly how many were there, are now unified. They're in lockstep in their antipathy for Jesus, they hate him for colluding with the Russians. Their authority comes from birth, from lineage, or from buying off the local Gentiles who are in charge. They consider themselves to be the protectors of the law and the traditions of the elders. So who does he think he is commandeering what is rightfully theirs. Why, he even reinterprets the law. He reinterprets their traditions. He thumbs his nose at them. What gives him the right to do so? Notice that these men specialize, who specialize in the details of the law, every stinking little detail of the law they know precisely. But when it comes to making a specific attack on Jesus... It's a vague attack about these things. What things? These things. When I was a kid, I was afraid of my father, especially when dad began to do a homework project. For whatever, my, whatever reasons, my dad was totally incapable of doing such things and totally unable to communicate. I remember one time when he was ensconced underneath the kitchen sink his face was bright red from the exertion that he was exercising, which was kind of unusual. And his command was, of course, laced with profanity as he had told me to go get that thing out of the thing. And I looked at my mother and I mouthed her, I have no idea what he's talking about. And she said, just go, 
just go. What in the world the thing and the thing was, I have no idea. So Jesus is supposed to give them an intellectual answer to their question about these things. What things? Well, the details really don't matter, do they? They were really irrelevant. Jesus turns their question about his authority back upon them by asking his own questions. As you know, this was a standard rabbinic method in debate. Just as all teachers in antiquity used these methodologies, so did Jesus. He was the master teacher, and he answers their question with a question. He was going to catch them, trap them in their own words, as they've tried to spring a trap on, the, on him. And in verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, the answer, obviously, I will also tell you by the, what authority I do these things. The Lord knew that they'd never recognize his authority. This was just a ploy, a trap. They were the ones, they thought, who had all authority. Therefore, he offers this counter question, which is, if you answer it, I'll tell you what and where I get my authority from. Notice we find that pesky conditional word in here, if, if. You always need to be aware of those. And you know, this if introduces a conditional clause. In this case, it's a third-class conditional clause. We can tell that by the way the Greek is formed. And that implies probable action in the future. So if you answer me, I'll likely answer you, says Jesus. Now, he uses that same if three times in these three verses which start this text. Danny, you can turn that air conditioning down just a tad, if you will, or up. Some people are getting cold. In a sense, what Jesus is proposing is, let me riddle this to you. And if you answer correctly, I'll answer you. His question of them was, by whose authority did John carry out his ministry to Israel? They ask him about his authority. Now he throws it back into them and asks them about John's authority because all of the Jewish community had embraced John as a bona fide prophet of God. They believed John had God's authority as a prophet. In other words, he was empowered by the Spirit of God according to the people and not by men. So Jesus offers them this deal. Tell me, where did John get his authority? The question of John's authority. If you answer me, I'll answer you. Jesus says in verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning amongst themselves, saying, if we say it's from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? The Lord asked them from where they got there, where did John get his authority for, to preach the message that he preached? Was that source God? Remember, when you see the term heaven in Scripture, in the Gospels, it always means God, because they would not say the name God because they might profane his name. So whenever you see the kingdom of heaven, it's really saying the kingdom of God. It is a synonym. So they ask him, did the authority from God come from God or men for John? Well, they knew they were stuck. <laughs> they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. No matter how they answered it, 
they were going to be in trouble. Because if they say that his source was from heaven, Jesus notes, they note, they note that they're going to be asked, then why didn't you believe it? And if it's if his authority came from men, then the crowd's going to turn on them because they believe John's authority came from God. These guys, however, are not stupid. They were trained in the same rabbinic methodology that Jesus was using. They were used to debating, but they knew they had been trapped logically by Jesus. So they called everyone together for a group hug, and... They knew the bases were loaded, and it was 3-0, and and it was the bottom of the ninth. They'd lost control of the game. No matter what pitch they threw, something bad was going to happen. They're saying to one another, hey, this guy's a lot smarter than we thought. Do you see the looks on the faces of the people in the crowd? If we say John got his authority from above, they'll say we are frauds because we didn't believe John. Verse 26, but if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regarded John as a prophet. These guys are genuinely afraid of the Passover crowd that has filled Jerusalem. Some people estimate as many as 2 million people have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They could lose all of their business in the temple, selling sacrificial animals and exchanging monies. There's really no route that they can go that they're going to win. So they just act dumb. That's the ticket. We'll just act stupid. So next we see the answers to these questions from both the religious elites first and then from Jesus to them. And answering Jesus, verse 27, they, the religious elites, say, the Sanhedrin, Duh, we don't know. We have no idea. We're stumped. We don't know where John's authority came from. Now, these guys all have doctorates in theology they're masters of theology they're experts in the law and yet they are saying they don't know the answer to a simple question of where john's message got its authority from the hypocrites shrug their shoulders and say gee we don't have any idea can we get back to you on that one yeah we'll get back to you next week after we have the romans whack you their reply We don't know. It was a total lie. Just like the left-wing progressive lie that the feds are putting poor immigrant children into concentration camps and separating them from their parents. It's a lie. A bald-faced lie. But you know what? Most people, most Americans believe it because they're stupid. They're stupid. Do you actually believe Americans are as bad as Nazis? Have you ever been to a Nazi concentration camp? You ever see what they did? How in the world this can be debated in our society is beyond me. It is disgusting behavior, I think. Yet these religious elites knew where John got his message from. They knew perfectly well Because they had spies within John's group as well. Or were those confidential informants? I'm sorry, I get it mixed up. They'd shown up, you'll recall, and heckled at one of John's baptismal services. Their refusal then to answer Jesus' question in front of the people, they believe, will release them of obligation 
to committal in front of the people. But Jesus, again, turns it around on him. He says, if you won't answer me, then I'm not going to answer you. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Don't you love it? Winning. Jesus is winning. So the religious elites, the experts in the law, look dumb before the people. And I believe it is at this point forward that they've lost all support of the people as religious leaders in Israel. Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. Why should he? Why should he tell them what they already know? Just as they were aware that John was a prophet of God, that's why they sicked Herod on him, because he was an enemy. They know where Jesus' authority comes from to claim Messiahship as well, and that's why they will sick the Roman authorities upon him. That's why Jesus had to die. He threatened their business. He threatened the status quo. He threatened the lies that they taught as truth to the people. Now, Jesus answers using three parables to show them the source of his authority. Parable number one is entitled, as I mentioned earlier, the parable of the two sons. We see that beginning in verse 28. The Lord asks them... What do you think? Another standard rabbinic methodology of teaching. He forces the students, that's what the master teacher does, forces the students to think about it and come up with a logical answer. What do you think? A man has two sons. And he came to the first son and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. Now, understand that this parable is only found in the book of Matthew. Why is that? Because it's unique to Matthew's argument to Jews that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful Messiah. Put that in your memory bank because I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. He says, what do you think? And then he gives the setting for the parable. A family-owned vineyard with a father and two sons. And he commands both sons in the exact same way, manner, to go out into the family vineyard and work. The father demonstrates no favoritism towards either son. He shows that they are equal in his eyes. He treats them exactly the same. It's a level playing field, if you will. Each son had the same opportunity to follow their father's instruction. The father asks each of his sons to go work in the vineyard. Today, and as the head of the family, he had every right to do so. After all, the boys were clothed and fed by the family vineyard. Every Israelite, every Jew in the temple listening to this story would have expected these Jewish sons to be happy to follow their father's instructions. Oh my, times have changed, have they not? However, this is not the case with the first son. He answered his father saying, I will not. Must have been a teenager. But afterward, afterward, he regretted it and went. So Jesus will compare and contrast the responses of the two Israelite sons to the father. 
Here we learn the first father won't do as his father asked. After some time goes by, he feels guilty about his negative response to his father, and then he goes and does just as the father requested. He was exercising willful disobedience to his father, and then experienced a change of mind. And then he honors his father's request. Now in verse 30, the father came to the second son and said the exact same thing. And he answered, I will, daddy. Yes, sir, I'll, I'll go about it. But then we read, then he did not go. Here the contrast between the first and the second son affirms that there is a huge difference between the two men. The second son says to his father, I will go, dad, sure. But then he doesn't. His father had every right to ask his sons to go work in the family vineyard. It was the normal and expected behavior of sons in Israel. Such a response to refuse to go would have offended the moral sensibilities of every Jew. An openly defiant son is an affront in an oriental society and would have deserved severe punishment. But after his refusal, the first son changed course and did as his father asked after he reflected upon it. But the second son, who promised to go up front, but didn't go as he said he would, he would have been seen in a very negative light by the crowd for not keeping his word. The son would have been seen as a liar who dishonored his father. Now, the first son, who initially refused but changed his mind, would have clearly been the preference by all Jews. I say this because we find this in Ezekiel chapter 18. There we read of God's view of these sons, though it's not commentary on it, but it reflects on it. Let me read it for you and listen very carefully. If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, that is, the first son returns, does what his father said, and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he will surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he practiced. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of, of the wicked rather than he should turn from his ways and live a change of mind, regretting past actions and changing direction. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, yeah, Dad, I'll go do it, commits iniquity, and then doesn't do what he was asked, and does according to the abominations of a wicked man, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered. For his treachery, which he has committed, his sin, which he has committed, for this he shall surely die. So then, based upon this text in Ezekiel, there was only one son who did right unto the father. The man who changed, the son who changed his mind about his choice, his sin, when he chose to do right, he was received by Yahweh and accepted. His sin would no longer be remembered. However, if a man says he will obey the Lord but then doesn't, he will die. Whoa. Now Jesus, the master teacher, is asking his students, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the experts in the law, 
to make a choice. Verse 31, which of these two sons did the will of his father? There it is. There's the question. Now, I'm going to answer this later for you, okay? So just keep that in your memory bank. Jesus asked which of the two sons did the will of God, and they gave him the obvious answer, the first. Listen now to Jesus' response to them. Truly, I say to you that the tax collector and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. As he points, probably, to the Sanhedrin. Jesus affirms that their answer is true, however, right it may be. Jesus concludes that entrance into the kingdom is not based upon one's verbal confession about God, nor about his actions. In other words, he who obeyed his father by doing the will of God, is Jesus saying that this one becomes a son of God by his actions? You would tend to think that by reading the passage, wouldn't you? The first son, okay, he changed and he did what his father asked him to do and he's now commended and accepted, right? So it's by your accident, by your, by your works, right? Isn't that what that makes you think? Now the second son is rejected because of his bad works. He didn't do the will of God. So you would expect on this passage that sons of the kingdom are received into it by their works, by their obedience. The answer seemed obvious to the religious elites because they say the first. You see, they were motivated by good works. They believed their righteousness before God was based upon their good works. The second son, who didn't do the will of God, was not accepted because he had no good works. He had a false profession, if you will. But Jesus says to them, You know those morally bankrupt people? The tax collectors? The ones that persecute the Jewish people by stealing from them? And the prostitutes? They're going to be in the kingdom of God before you. The question is why. Now, I believe the second son represents the religious elites and the nation of Israel. Of course, you know that the father is representative of God above, the father in heaven. The first son initial response is illustrative of the moral disobedience of the lost. He says, I won't go, just as sinners continue to sin like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes had a change of mind when they heard the preaching of John, when they heard the preaching of Jesus. The second son illustrates those who are attempting to get into heaven by works. Their righteousness is based on the things that they do. They, the Sanhedrin, were the hierarchy of the Israelite religion. They professed to love God and then they did the exact opposite as the second son. Now, the Reformed Lordship people out there in wider Christendom argue based on this text that the actions that the actions of men are more significant than words. Follow me here now. They believe that you are saved by the things that you do, not the things that you say. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. 
we want to know what the truth is. What is the truth? Why are the abhorrent ones, the moral deplorables, the outcasts of society, the moral reprobates, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, who, according to the religious elites, were under the curse of God, why are they acceptable? And they are not. They couldn't do anything to please God. They had no works. Why is this guy saying they're going to be received into the kingdom of God before us? The conclusion is this. They recognize their sinfulness, their utter sinfulness, their total bankruptcy, their devoidness, if that's a word, of righteousness. They needed imputed righteousness from God above. The Lord compares and contrasts the self-righteous elites with the scum of society, the despised, the sinners that are so bad that they'd never even make it into the temple place. And this man has the temerity to say that they are going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God before them. The well-respected, the well-healed, the elites who live to do the will of God, supposedly. They're based, they're Their acceptance was based on human works rather than the divine gift of God. These men, though religious, tried to please God by keeping the little details of their law that they defined themselves, that they made up the rules. And yet Jesus says they're going to be accepted before you. I find some hopefulness in that, though. The idea they're before you, there's still a chance. It's a million to one, but they might have a change of mind, and receive Christ. Now, in verse 32, Jesus refers to the forerunner of his ministry, John the Baptist, who came preaching the message, the kingdom of God is at hand. In a sense, John served as a barometer for all men. All men were measured against his message. Their response to John's message was the litmus test for spiritual receptiveness. And in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you see this? Did not even feel remorse. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse remorse afterward as so to believe him. I want you to know repeated words have importance. What word is repeated three times in this text? Is it works? Is it obedience? It is belief. Believe. My goodness. I have none, by the way. When something is repeated and repeated again, it's being emphasized because of its importance. Is it works or belief? It's belief. These terrible, morally bankrupt sinners had believed the message of John and Jesus and experienced a change of mind and a change of destiny. They had believed unto life. Now, I want you to notice there's no mention of them starting a ministry to the homeless. There's no mention of them having a closet of clothes to give people or marching in the streets to help the the poor illegal immigrants from other countries. There's none of that. The only thing that matters in this message is to believe the message of God's messenger, John the Baptist or Jesus. 
the Jewish believers who supposedly knew the Old Testament should have believed instantaneously. But what did they do? They rejected both John and Jesus. They couldn't fathom God using these two hicks from the sticks instead of them. They were proud of their flowing white gowns with the blue tapestry at the bottom and their funny-looking hats and the, and the games that they played at the temple. They were proud of all that. They had no humility at all. They would never change their thinking, just like many people in our culture today. The truth cannot penetrate their hearts and minds. They will not change because they already think they know what the Bible is about, even though they've never read it. As I've told you many times, just ask somebody how they're going to be made right with God, and eight out of the ten times they're going to answer, I keep the Ten Commandments. What's the next question? What are they? And they can't give you two or three of them. But they're supposed to make it into heaven and please God by keeping something that they do not know. You see, their religion is based on feelings rather than truth. Our culture emphasizes... I've left my manuscript now and we're just chatting. Their religion is based on feelings. Their religion is based on information from skewed sources. CNN. The History Channel. The Discovery Channel. Rather than the text of the Word of God. They will not get into heaven before those who are truly sinful and recognize their sinfulness. Now, in this text, Jesus has talked about two sons. And he's answering the question, who will get into the kingdom? It's based upon belief, right? But the question about who does the will of God, that really is what they were asking. Who did, Jesus said, who did the will of God? The first son or the second son? I want you to know that there's a third son. The third son is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only one who does the will of God. Neither of these two sons ever did the will of God. You see, we really can't do the will of God. Not in totality. Maybe brief spurts here and there. The only one who's ever done the will of God perfectly is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son, the son of David. A third son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the focus here because he has done God's will. He's obeyed perfectly. All three parables are distinct from one another, but they all talk about the Son of God, the one who God sends to earth to pay the penalty for man's sin. Matthew placed this unique parable to make that point. But the Reformed Calvinist wants to turn this text on its head and says it's because... They obeyed. That's why they entered the kingdom of God. They couldn't be more wrong. It's because they believed. You see, your obedience means nothing. Your obedience means nothing as far as justifying, getting into heaven, getting into the kingdom of God. You're not justified by your works. You're condemned by your works. 
The only thing that can make you right with the Almighty is to believe the message of the gospel. Now, bear in mind that these people are not hearing the message of the gospel that you hear. They're under the paradigm of the Old Testament. What they were being asked to believe, what they had to believe was that the Messiah was standing in their midst, that he was the one and only bonafide son of God because he was a son of David. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't been buried yet. He hasn't risen from the grave. This is not the gospel that we believe in. This is the gospel of the kingdom, that the Messiah, the king of Israel, is standing before you. If you accept him and believe in him, the kingdom which is at hand will ensue. But they reject Jesus. They reject the kingdom. And look at the last 2,000 years of history for Israel. Miserable. They're rocketing him every day because they hate the Jews. Well, we don't hate the Jews. We love them. They're God's chosen people. We've been tasked with taking the message of Christ to them first. Jesus came unto the Jews and offered himself to be their king, but they rejected him. Parable number two, the parable of the tenants, is next week, as well as parable number three, the parable of the wedding feast. Okay, so the question is, how do we apply this ancient text to our lives today? What does this mean for you and me living in 21st century America? First thing I would recommend to you is that you never question the authority of the word of God. You outside these walls, people are going to question the Bible all the time. It's got errors in it. It's not the word of God. What makes your word more true than the Muslims or the so-and-sos? The Christian who believes in the authority of the word of God is the one that will find the truth and live the abundant life. Never question the word of God. Now, yes, you can study it, but there's always an answer to any conflicts that you might find, in your mind at least. The religious elites then and now were not the authority The elder board and the pastor of this church or any church is not the authority. We're simply guides to help you find the truth. We're not dictators. We're shepherds. Our job is to help you see the truth, to understand it, and to live it. Secondly, your works are meaningless in the sense of justification. Your works are totally worthless. All our works are as filthy rags, remember? The world wants to be accepted by what they do. You can never be accepted by the things you do, only by receiving the free gift of eternal life, by believing in the Son that God sent to die for you. Thirdly, Understand that you are a moral reprobate. I don't care how many years you've spent in that pew. You are a moral reprobate. Every thought that you have is against the will of God. The only thing that can turn your mind to the right thinking is the word of God, is the Holy Spirit as he convicts you of the truth. Otherwise, we are fine-tuned 
to live contrary and in an alienation to the God above. Only the word of God and the Holy Spirit has the power to change your thinking, to renew your minds. That means you better be in it. That means you better be reading it. That means you better be studying it because it's the truth. It's God's word, which is powerful beyond all that we can ask or even think. Truth is, people of God, there's not one good thing about you or me. The only good that is in me is Christ Jesus who dwells in me because I have believed the message. God is good and we are sinful. I trust you've embraced that fully. The Almighty is not looking for religious people. He's looking for believers who trust in his message. We gain acceptance into the good graces of God by believing that, not by doing that. Jesus came as a substitute for sinners. Like a lamb, he laid down his life in payment for our sins. It is by believing and trusting in his sacrifice that we can be acceptable to a holy God. The message of the Bible is from God. It's not from men. God used men to write it, but the message came directly from him through the Holy Spirit unto these men. The Bible is from above. For those who believe and trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, you, my dear ones, are winners. True winners. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his unbelievable teaching. Help us, Lord, to heed that teaching, to understand it correctly, to apply it to our lives. Help us, Father, to know the truth, for the truth shall certainly set our minds and hearts free. Help us to live out this life that you've given to us in Christ, to live, to live abundantly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.